Number two, in the way that he lists them, is they begin with the end in mind. Whether we're talking about a business, a team, or even a family, successful people have visualized in their minds what success is going to look like for them long before it comes to pass. And once they decide what the end should look like, they order their lives around a set of values that will help them accomplish their goal. I personally have a piece of paper clipped on the desktop file folder that sits right in front of where I've set my computer in my office. And the title of that page is My Life Values. Years ago, I sat down and I listed, and I don't know why, but I came up with 10. I didn't really number them, but 10 of values that I center my life around. And the way I came up with those values is, these are the things that I would love to have said about me when you put me in a box and you gather to put me in the ground and somebody is eulogizing uh, my life. There was 10 things that I put on that list. Um, values, and underneath of that, I typed out my life mission based on those values and how that mission and those values relate to the way that I relate to my wife, to my children, to my grandchildren, and to my church family. I did not necessarily type them in order of importance. It was just thinking about my funeral. And you say, how morbid. But in order for me to live the way that I want to live, I need to put that thought in my mind to begin with. So I had those 10. Anybody want to know what they were? Oh, a couple of you did. I was going to skip over them. <laughs> Number one on my list was to be a man of integrity. A man of integrity. To be known as a man who loved God to be known as a loving husband, to be a loving father and grandfather, excellence in everything I do. Jesus first, my wife second, my family third, and my ministry next. I wrote, it is my life value to serve more than being served. And to inspire people by my example, not by telling what people to do, but living what I believe we ought to do. A life value that I have is to work hard, to not be lazy. And the 10th one, and not necessarily in order, but the 10th one that leads into the subject for this morning is to, to know and to live the Word of God. Amen. To know and to live the Word of God. For the past several weeks, we've been talking about what I believe are the core values that guide my decisions as we pastor Faith Family Christian Center. The values that shape who we are and who we're becoming as we fill our place in the larger body of Christ as this portion of the body.
news message that I've been sharing, I've not necessarily listed, this is number one, two, three, and four. I've just, whatever the Lord inspired me, which one of these values I wanted to talk about on each Sunday, and uh, that's how I've been led. And today, the core value that I want to talk about this is this, the Bible, or the Word of God, is our authority. The Bible, or the Word of God, is our authority. When I say our authority, it is the guide, it is the compass, it is the final say as to what is right and what is wrong. It is the final say as to which direction we go, when to turn to the right, when to turn to the left. It is the final authority in what we believe. The Word of God. The Word of God. I want to direct your attention momentarily to a passage of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke in a moment in Jesus' life. In Luke chapter 5, verse 1, he, we read these words. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, let me remind you in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was, was God. And a little later, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word. At your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled the, to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. When they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. This was an incredible moment in the lives of these fishermen. A defining moment in their lives. What took place that day changed the course of their lives. They would never be the same. It is the word of God that can change our lives. It's the word of God that can change our lives. I want to look at how the word relates to us in several ways. This will not be a message that includes everything because we have to eat spaghetti at one o'clock, okay? <laughs> Number one, five observations from this story. 
Jesus makes requests or commands of us to see how we will respond. Jesus makes requests or commands of us to see how we respond. On an ongoing basis, you can expect the Spirit of God to move you with certain questions or commands about life. Jesus, in this story, uh, speaks to Peter. He starts by stepping into his boat. Peter, would you push away from the shore just a little bit so I can use this as a platform? Now, the subtext that I read there is Peter asks, or Jesus asks Peter, may I use your boat for a moment? Remember, Peter's gone from the boat. They're washing their nets. But then it says, Peter, push out from the shore. So it appears to me that Peter gets into the boat with Jesus. Can I use your boat for a moment? After Jesus finishes teaching to the crowd of people who gathered to hear the word of God, that's the way it's written here, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and said, let's go to deeper water and let's do some fishing. And you heard me read this story. You read it with me, and it turns out to be one of the best fishing trips they've ever taken where they nearly sink two boats with what they catch in the net that they have dropped down. So they start with Jesus asking, can I use your boat? Can we press? Can we just go fishing for a little while? And this series of questions leads, led them to a greater re revelation of who Jesus Christ was. And Peter falls on his knees. He has the same experience that Isaiah denied, Isaiah chapter 6, I'm a sinful man. You are obviously a holy God. Depart from me. His life was changed. God reveals himself to us as we are obedient and respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Jesus challenges us to trust and obey in areas of life that are most important to us. Jesus challenges us to trust and obey in areas of life that are most important to us. When, when Jesus came where Peter, James, and John were on this particular day, he spoke to them about something they understood, fishing. They knew a lot about fishing. Question is, could they trust Jesus to speak to them in an area where they thought they had full understanding? They knew something about this. This is an area they were trained in. This, the question was not, can, can you trust God in areas that you're uncertain about? The question is, can we trust God when we're stumbling and look for answers? The question is, can I trust God when I'm pretty sure about where I am and how I got here, where I have confidence, where I have this sense of security? He confronts them about something they've been doing all their lives, they grew up on boats. It was the family business, fishing. 
they felt very confident in their knowledge and expertise about how to catch fish. Number three, we struggle in the areas where we have control or experience. We struggle in the areas where we have control or experience. When the Lord begins to speak to us, he does that in several ways. God speaks to us through the written word. And everybody said? He speaks to us. His spirit speaks to our spirit. God speaks to us. Sometimes the teacher or the preacher says just what you needed to hear. And didn't want to hear. When the Lord speaks to us about things that we've had control of, we struggle. Jesus says, Peter, let's go fishing. Cast out your nets. What was Peter's response? Well, Lord, we were fishing all night. That's when we fish. We fish at night. You will notice the sun is shining brightly. The nets are going to be very visible to the fish. Some of us have experienced similar moments in our life. We thought we were doing something or had done something, and the Lord comes along and says, I want you to do this. And we respond, I already tried that, and it didn't work. A thought to consider. To say, Lord, I don't understand, often signifies a pride and control issue in us. I didn't want it to be too heavy, so I didn't put it in your notes, but I just wanted to think about that. Lord, I don't understand. That often signifies a pride and control issue in us. We love to be in control, don't we? Number four, we are called to give God's word final authority in every area of our life. We are called to give God's word final authority every, even if it doesn't make sense. Verse five said, Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and have caught, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. In other words, Lord, it doesn't seem like this is going to work. This isn't normal. It doesn't make sense. But because you said so, we'll let down the nets. I will let you have the final word. Can we get up close and personal for a moment? When we begin to study the word, meditate on the word, grab hold of the word, hold it close to our hearts, does it change our lives? Do we let the word of God have final authority in our lives? Because you said so. Is that the governing thought in our life? When somebody hurts you deeply, Do you allow the word of God to govern your thoughts? To I must forgive, I will forgive. 
Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Do not take vengeance. Number five, consistent results come from consistent obedience. Consistent results come from consistent obedience. As I said a moment ago, this event on the lake ends up with two boats being swamped with fish in the middle of the day. They caught more fish than they can handle simply because they obeyed the word of the Lord. It's a principle that's always true. Doing God's thing is always good for me, and God has a plan that works. Doing God's thing is always good for me, and God has a plan that works. We must be a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. It is the word that validates who we are and what we experience, not the other way around. Our ministries, our lives must be based upon what the Word of God says. Peter said it right, because you say so at your word, I will do it. And you say, isn't this pretty elementary for a church? I want you to know that in the day and age that we live, there is a movement of churches that call themselves progressive who no longer use the word of God as their sole basis of authority. In fact, they negate, they redact much of the word of God to fit the narrative of the culture, trying to make people to be accepted even though people walking in sin. God loves them, but God still hates the sin. It's still sin. And God's word says you must repent. You cannot continue on in your sin. It has nothing to do with God's love. It has something to do with righteousness and holiness. And there are churches in this city who would be offended by what I'm going to say today, that the Bible is our final authority, the word of God. Paul wrote to Timothy, as he's giving him instructions as to what his values should be as a pastor of churches. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. At least four claims that Paul makes right here. All of it is God's word. All scripture is God's word. It's God-breathed, God-inspired. The reason this book says Holy Bible on it, in the front, on the title page, is we believe that what we have here are words that God inspired by the Holy Spirit for men to write down. And then God miraculously preserved these words and had men put them together in what we call the canon of Scripture. In these pages are God's commands for living. In these pages are the guidelines for relationships with each other and with God. As we live out the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. But it's all the Word of God. 
we don't get to choose which parts we want to embrace and which ones we want to redact that do not fit our thinking or our agenda or because they're not politically correct. It is the word of God. Number two, its instruction is profitable. Its instruction is profitable. The word is alive and it imparts life to the recipient. The recipient is the person who will receive his instruction. When we follow the word, we obey the word, it's profitable for our life. Paul says it's profitable for at least three, four things. He said it's profitable for teaching, how to live. Teaching us how to live. Teaching us how to die. Teaching us what to believe. It is profitable for rebuking. For rebuking. Let us see, it's for correcting. For correcting. Indeed, for training. The Word of God. It will help shape us to become the people God created us to be as we embrace the Word. Helps us to get it right. It shows us how to stay right. It helps us to live right. Again, the word is alive and very beneficial. Number three, it's comprehensive. It meets every need. It's comprehensive. It meets every need. Now, I don't know how often you think about a preacher's job and how he preaches to a congregation of people, but every time we come in here, whether there be four of us, 20 of us, or 150 of us, that's 150 or four different needs. There's no way that I can speak every Sunday specifically to every need that I know about. In fact, I don't ever endeavor to preach about any need that I know about. I endeavor to preach the word because you know what happens when I preach the word? I'll have people come to me as they go out the door. That was for me today. And they'll tell me what they heard. Somebody else will come along and say, that was for me today. And they told me what they heard. And I can't believe the two heard what they heard because I didn't say either one of those things. But when we opened up the Word, the Holy Spirit took where we were in the Word and began to instruct individuals sitting in the congregation or listening online specifically where they are at in their need. And only the Holy Spirit could do that. And only the Word of God can minister to all of us on the same day at the same time when we have different needs. Number four, it can completely equip us for life and ministry. It can completely equip us for life and ministry. Paul told Timothy that so that you would be, the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Back seat of my pickup right now is crammed full of tools. Yeah. 
because there's a couple of different projects I've been working on. And there's nothing worse than going to work on a project and not having the right tool and having to go back home again to get that tool. So I try to go fully equipped for the job I'm going to do. Paul said to Timothy and to you and I, when you begin to live the word of God, you are fully equipped for every good work that God has created you for. We need the word of God. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the moving of the Holy Spirit and we need the word of God. We need them both. If you have nothing but the spirit without the word, you blow up. If you have the word without the spirit, you dry up. But when you have the word and the spirit together, you grow up. We are a people committed to the authority of the word of God. It's a core value. That's why I preached from the scripture and put it up there. Used to be, I would make sure that everybody brought their Bibles because we all used to have the same translation, but now we don't. And so um, I try to, for simplicity's sake, use one and put it on the screen for you. It is why I encourage you to read the Bible every day. The Bible. The very existence of this book to me is proof that there's a living God. As you just think about how he got it, it did not fall from the sky, already printed, chapters and verses, did not come that way. It is the product of God moving upon the hearts of men and those men responding to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. You can read all through history where, where, where men have tried to get rid of the Scripture. I mean, even in the Bible, you can read about where Josiah, when he was a young boy, became the king of, of, of Judah. And while he was the king of Judah, the scrolls, of the scripture were discovered buried someplace in the temple and he led a revival of living under the authority of the word of God in, in Jerusalem and Judah. However, when he died and one of his sons became the king of Israel and became a subservient to the king of Egypt and was named Jehoiakim, history tells us that about 600 B.C., he took the scroll and threw it in the fire in an effort to burn it up so that he could lead Judah in idolatry. He was a king who had the, the prophets of God thrown in jail. If anybody declared, this is the word of the Lord. In fact, he hunted down one prophet who had fled to Egypt because he knew there was a bounty on his head. The king wanted it, and he sent men after him and brought him back and executed him for declaring the word of God. Shortly after AD 1300, John Wycliffe translated the scriptures into English from Latin. It ended up everyone who possessed a copy of his English Bible was put to death. They were burned along with the scriptures that they held close to their chest. The hatred for Wycliffe was, was so strong that after his death, they came and dug up his bones from the grave, burned them, and took the ashes and spread them over a river and said, nobody, you know, the memory of this man will be completely washed away from the, the memory of men. 
1536, William Tyndale was executed for translating the New Testament. They burned him at the stake. There have been thousands of men and women who literally gave their life for the love of the Word of God and their stand to see it preached, printed, and distributed. They gave their lives so you and I today could open up a Bible written in a language we can understand. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that's true. Let me give you a few facts about the Bible. It is unique in its continuity. It is unique in its continuity. It was written spanning a period of 1,600 years plus, almost 2,000 years, some guys believe, from the first author to the last author. It was written and covered over 60 generations of men and women, over 60 generations from the beginning, from the first part that was written, probably the book of Job being the first book, all the way to the end. It was written by 40-plus authors, written by 40-plus authors from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. For example, Moses, a political leader trained in the University of Egypt. Peter, an untrained man as far as education. He was a fisherman. Amos, he was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the king. Daniel, a young man who became a prime minister. Luke, a physician. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi. It was written in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah wrote from a dungeon. Daniel from a palace. Paul inside of uh, prison walls. Luke while traveling with Paul. John on the Isle of Patmos. Some wrote in the rigors of military campaigns. On and on it goes. It was written in different times. Different times. Some of us written from times of war. Some of us written in times of peace. Some of us written when there's plenty. Some when there's not so much. Different times. It's written in different moods. It's written in different moods. Some of it is from the heights of joy. Others writing from the depths of sorrow and despair and disillusionment. Ecclesiastes is the disillusioned preacher. Song of Solomon is a love story. I mean, all kinds of different genre. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three different languages. Hebrew is the language of the Old Testament. Second Kings 18 calls it the language of Judah. Isaiah calls it the language of Cana. He Hebrew. Aren't you glad you didn't have to learn how to write Hebrew and read Hebrew? And, and, and then Aramaic. Uh, some of the Old Testament, even some of the New Testament in Aramaic. That was the, the language of the Near East until the time of Alexander the Great. Um, and then the Greek, 
the New Testament language was the international language when Christ walked the earth because of Alexander the Great, who uh, replaced Aramaic as the national language or the global language for that matter. Number nine, its subject matter contains hundreds of controversial subjects, hundreds. Controversial subject is one which would create opposing opinions when mentioned or discussed. But even though that is true, it has a conclusion of continuity. What I mean by that is, it is an agreement from the beginning to the end. It is one story. It is the story of Jesus Christ from the beginning to the end. The books that we have in the canon, they are there because they either prophesied about Jesus, told about Jesus, a prophecy about is coming again. It's all about Jesus. And the amazing thing is, though it spans 1,600 years plus, 40 different authors, everything they said about Jesus dovetails together. It is unique in its circulation. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. There have been more copies produced of its entirety and more portions and selections than any other book in history. Now, I know that some of you can argue that at certain months there is another book that will outsell the Bible for that month. But there has never been another book that has reached or begins to compare to the circulation of the Scriptures. The first major book to be printed was the Latin Vulgate a Latin portion of the Bible on Gutenberg's press. It's unique in its translation. It's unique. It was the first book to ever be translated from one language to another. The Greek Septuagint was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Bible has been translated, retranslated, paraphrased more than any other book in existence. It's unique in its survival. Unique, and it has survived through time. Now, when you remember that the first scrolls were written on something that was going to perish, and it had to be copied and recopied, there were people, that was their life job. When they went to work, they had a quill and an inkwell, and they just copied the scriptures from an old scroll to a new scroll. All their life, they wrote, so that we might have. And all that time, it did not diminish its style, its correctness, nor existence. You say, how do we know it didn't change it? Well, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, it validated hundreds of pages of Scripture that had been copied and copied and copied and copied. Survival through persecution. The Bible has withstood vicious attacks of its enemy like no other book. Many have tried to burn it, ban it, and outlaw it from the days of the Roman emperors to present-day communism in Muslim countries. Sidney Colette, in his book All About the Bible, says Voltaire, the noted French infidel, atheist, 
He died in 1778. He said that in 100 years from his time, Christianity would be swept from existence and passed into history. Well, Voltaire has passed into history. And the circulation of the Bible continues to increase almost every part of the world, carrying blessing wherever it goes. For example, the English cathedral in Zanzibar is built on the site of an old slave market, and the communion table stands on the very spot where there was a whipping post where they whipped the slaves. And the world abounds with instances like that where the word of God has made a drastic difference. One man said this, we might as well put our shoulders to the burning wheel of the sun and try to stop its flaming course as to attempt to stop the circulation of the Bible. Voltaire said it's, Christianity will be extinct in 100 years. Geisler and Nix point out that 50 years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society used Voltaire's printing press in Voltaire's house to produce stacks of Bibles. Can't stomp it out. Survival through criticism. Through criticism. John W. Lee, he wrote, infidels for 1,800 years have been refuting and overthrowing this book, and yet today it stands as solid as a rock. Its circulation increases. It's more loved and cherished, read today than ever before. Infidels with all their assaults make about as much impression on this book as a man with a tack hammer would on the pyramids of Egypt. When the French monarch proposed the persecution of Christians in his dominion, an old statesman and warrior said to him, Sire, the church of God is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. So the hammers of infidels have been pecking away at this book for the ages, but the hammers are worn out and the anvil still endures. If this book had not been the book of God, men would have destroyed it long ago. Emperors and popes, kings and priests, princes and rulers have tried their hand at it. They die and the book still lives. It is unique in its teachings. There's not another book like it in what it teaches and how it teaches. I could go on and on about this subject, but just for example, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the first coming of Jesus Christ, when he would be born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, over 300 of them. If you were to study mathematical probabilities, the probability of all 300 of those prophecies coming true is a number that is so staggering that my mind cannot comprehend it. We believe it is the Word of God, and there's no other book like it. It is the Word of God. I want to talk momentarily about the power of the Word. The power of the Word. What promise do you find in Isaiah 55, verse 11? It says this, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The promise is God's word will be fulfilled. God's word will be accomplished. 
His word will do just what he said it would do. When God spoke, whatever he spoke will come to pass. It is powerful. What are the results from embracing the word of God and meditating on the word of God and making the word of God a core value? Psalms 1 says this, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scornful, or lives by what's politically correct. Oh, that's what it says. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And he's like a tree planted by the rivers or streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The promise for making the word of God the core value is stability. The promise is fruitfulness. The promise is life, life abundantly. It is prosperity or success in this life. When I make the word of God my final authority for how I live. The Apostle Paul made the statement that what was written for old times was for an example for us to follow. In the days of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, there was a priest that God raised up by the name of Ezra. God used him to speak to the people, not only about rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the walls of the city, but rebuilding their lives on the word of God. And Ezra 7.10 says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Four things that Ezra did. As you read the book that has his name on it, Ezra prepared his heart to approach God's word. He prepared his heart to approach God's word. He set his heart. When he came to study the word, he came with an understanding he must do with a proper mindset, a proper attitude. We sing every once in a while, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That's a great prayer when you open the Word of God. Right. Holy Spirit, open my heart, open my eyes today. I need to hear from you. Right. He prepared his heart to study God's Word, to study God's Word. As he read the Word, he allowed his heart to be open and tender to what the Spirit would speak and apply that Word to his life because he prepared his heart, number three, to practice what he found. He set his heart to study the law and to do it, it says. To do it. He began to apply it. Not only began to apply it, but he began to share, number four, what he had learned. He prepared his heart to share. Prepared his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach its statutes and rules to Israel. You know the fastest way to really learn something and remember it forever? or at least for two or three months, right. is to share it with somebody within 24 hours. 
verbally share what you learned. And if you share it, when you involve more of your senses, it becomes embedded in your heart. It'll have more profound effect upon your life. If we want to put it in more modern day vernacular, one father said to his kids as he was raising his three sons, number one, you got to learn it. You got to learn it. It deals with my mind. I need to learn what the word says. I need to memorize it. It cannot change you until you know what it says. You got to love it. You got to love it. Not only do I need to know the word in my cranium, I need to know the word in my heart. To love the word of the Lord. Embrace the word and let the word embrace you. And then number three, you got to live it. You got to live it. It doesn't mean a whole lot of anything unless it affects the way I live. James said, you need to be more than hearers of the word. You need to be doers of the word. The psalmist wrote, your word I've hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Romans tells us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When you learn it, love it, and live it, there are some convictions about the Bible that will be in our hearts. We'll have convictions about life. We'll have convictions about our God, about right and wrong. I want to put four natural convictions that should be the outflow of learning, loving, and living the Word of God. Conviction number one, even when I don't understand it, I will trust what God has said. Even when I don't understand it, I will trust what God has said. I will take it at face value. I will place my trust not in my understanding. I will put my trust in God and his word. In 2 Kings chapter 5, you can read the story of a man named Naaman. Naaman was a captain of the army of um, Aram. And Naaman became afflicted with leprosy. And in the course of war, they had taken a prisoner of war from Israel, a little Israeli girl who became the servant in his household. And when she discovered that her boss has leprosy, she said, if you were in Israel, there's a prophet there who could cure you. So Naaman went to his king and his king wrote him a letter to the king of Israel, and the king of Aram says to the king of Israel, I want you to cure my man Naaman of leprosy. And the king of Israel, when he reads that, he tears his garment and said, Who in the world am I to do this? How can I do this? Elisha, the prophet, somehow hears through the grapevine. I mean, they didn't have Facebook, but they had a grapevine. It was almost as fast as Facebook. He heard that this guy was up there wanting to be healed, and he said, send him to my house. So Naaman comes to Elisha's house laden with silver and gold and, and ten new garments or changes of clothes to give to whoever heals him. And when he gets there, knocks on the door, Elisha sends Gehazi, his servant, to the door to meet this captain and says to him, go down to the river Jordan, dip yourself seven times in the water, 
and you will be cleansed. And the scripture says, Naaman became furious and was in a rage. That's the two words used in the ESV language. He was furious. He thought. He said, I thought when I would come down here, the prophet would come out and he would wave his hand over me and cure me. And he tells me to go wash in the dirty Jordan River. We have far better rivers back at home. I'm not going to do it. And he's stomping away like a two-year-old. And his servant said to him, Now, if the prophet would have asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. But he asked you to do this simple thing, just go dip yourself in the river seven times. What have you got to lose? He humbled himself. He went and washed himself seven times. And lo and behold, as he emerged from the seventh submersion, he has brand new skin. And he returns to Elisha and said, Now I know the only God there is, is the God in Israel. You see, it didn't make sense to him. I thought you were going to do it this way. Have you ever had a tendency to bring our prayers to God with a preconceived answer? God, this is what I want, and this is how you should do it. <laughs> step one, step two, step three, step four. Now, you might not have given step one, step two, or three, but in your, we, we've all done it, haven't we? This is, Lord, it'll be for your glory. It'll be for your glory. But it's a conviction that comes from studying the word. Even though I don't understand it, I'm going to trust God. Number two, although it seems illogical, I will obey what God says. Even though it seems illogical, I will obey what God says. Back to our first story. Thought I forgot about it. Peter said, fishing in the daylight is illogical. It's not the normal way of doing things. But because Jesus said it, and Peter did it, his life was never the same. Because Jesus said it, and Peter did it, his life was never the same. And the same will be true for you and I when we do what the Word of God says, even though we don't understand it, and it's illogical. What about the story in the Gospel of John? They run out of wine. Mary brings the people to Jesus, do whatever he says. He said, fill the jugs full of water. Okay, they're full of water. Take it to the host. Let him taste it. Yeah. Would you want to be the servant? Taking it to the host and giving him water when he's expecting wine? But in the process of carrying it from here to there, yeah. it ended up being the finest wine yeah. that the wedding had at that day. It wasn't logical, but it was the word of the Lord. While human opinions may vary, number three, God's word is right on everything. Yeah. 
While human opinions may vary on how to treat your wife, God's word is right. How to treat your husband, God's word is right. How to deal with your enemy, God's word is right. Number four, I need the word of God as much as I need food. I need the word of God as much as I need food. Jesus quoted what God had recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. For the word of God is the bread of life. It's the spiritual staple that, that causes me to grow in my faith and my love for God. It's doing the word of God that transforms my life. Convictions come in our lives when we have learned what the Word of God says on a given subject, when we choose to apply and obey the Word in a daily context, when we have exposed ourselves to a need in that area, when we have decided what is worth living for and dying for. We have this conviction. We've settled the issue before we are forced to. It is the Word of God. Application steps. Choose a time. Choose a time to read the Word every day. Choose a time. Have you ever found a round to it? So many things we do, we say, when I get around to it. A few years ago, somebody punched out some little wooden things that had two on it and handed them out. But choose a time. Choose a place. Choose a place. Whether it be in your bed before you put your feet on the floor or next to your easy chair when you get up in the morning or your easy chair before you get to bed at night. Choose a place. Choose a version. Choose a version of the Scripture that you can understand when you read it. Because if you can understand it when you read it, it makes no difference. And to thank the Lord today, there's so many English versions that have been written to clarify. And you know, I'm using the ESV. I used the NIV for years and years. The ESV might be a little more accurate. The NIV is probably a little more readable in terms of sixth, seventh grade level. You know that newspapers are written on about the sixth or seventh grade level so people can understand, except when you read the editorials. Oh, that didn't come out of my mouth. Let her have a plan. Have a plan. The reason I put in the bulletin every week, I'm reading, you don't have to use that one, but find a plan to read systematically through the Scripture. Now, I know people who just open up their Bible every morning and put their thumb down, and some days that works out good, and some days not so much. But have a plan. Study the Word. Matthew 7, 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, 
and the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The flip side of that, Jesus said, is this. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and the beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. I want to be part of verses 24 and 25, built on the rock. I want you to be built on the rock. I want us to be a house built on the rock of the word of God. When everything else in this world falls apart, and it will, we are going to be standing strong because we're on the Word of God. And after I got done with the message, there was one more verse, and I didn't put it anywhere. But I want you to see this. Paul wrote, For whatever is written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We live in a world that is full of hopelessness. But because we have the Word of God and we live by its instruction, we live with an unshakable hope. I belong to Him. He belongs to me. And whatever my Father has started in my life, He's faithful to the end to, per to perfect that. The Word of God, it's powerful. I don't know if you appreciate it in the summertime having air conditioning. I know I'm talking to in this building. But we have air conditioning in this building because of the Word of the Lord. You say, what are you talking about? Years ago, my father went into the pancake house, sat down to have breakfast, and the owner came by and introduced herself to him. Sat down, had a conversation with Edith Kwan. He left his calling card, which on the back of it had John 3.16. That's all it said, God loves you, John 3.16. She went home, found a Bible, opened up John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes on Him should not perish. That's all she read. And he just said, Jesus, or God, if you're really real, if this is really true, I want you to come into my heart. I want life, eternal life. Simply because she opened up the Word of God, her life was transformed. And she didn't like being here on Sunday night when it was hot. So she purchased the first air conditioners that we had. I'm not so concerned about the air conditioners, but I'm concerned about the fact that the Word of God is powerful. It's powerful. The thing about the Word of the Lord is whatever I preach, when I come to the end of a message, the Holy Spirit can use when I say, Jesus Christ loves you. 
And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that you'll be saved, there are individuals who grab a hold of that truth and they become born again in that moment because the Word of God is powerful. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of the Lord. The Father, we thank you for the Word. We want to make ourselves a people who live by the authority of the Word of God. Not by what feels good, not by what is voted to be popular, but what is voted to be right because you said it. At your Word, Lord, we will let down the nets. Lord, I pray, I pray that you would give us a greater hunger for your word than we've ever had. I pray that each one of us as we open the word would pray for a greater understanding of the word. Not just to have this intellectual knowledge, but it's your word that transforms us. Your word that renews our mind. Your word that dispels all the lies and the darkness that our minds are being inundated with each and every day through all of the mediums that are around us. Because the enemy has a stronghold in all of those places of communication where he's speaking lies, bringing despair, bring hopelessness. But we have your word. We have your spirit. And because of that, we live with great hope today. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. I would like to stand and sing a declaration. The third verse of a course we haven't sang for a little while.